0: I reckon that describes our world today. We say to people, your life is whatever you want it to be. There's no religion telling you what to do. There's no big story to fit into. Go, make your own meaning. And it sounds freeing, but we actually end up lost. Because when they say, you get to make your own meaning, do you hear what they're also saying? There's no actual meaning. That's why you have to make it up. There's no real point to your life, so you better come up with one. But that's a lot of pressure, isn't it? What if you can't find one? Or sometimes even worse, what if you find it and then you achieve it? One of the greatest moments of Australian sporting history was Cathy Freeman winning gold at the Sydney Olympics but 12 years later, she said that what she felt in that moment was full, but also instantly empty. Because the goal that had defined her evaporated. And it took her years to find another purpose, which she eventually found in living for something better than, bigger than herself. And she actually said that was much more meaningful. Quote from her, the gold medal was just all about me, for goodness sake. We are made to live for something bigger than ourselves, but our world does not have an answer to what that is. And so there's a crisis of meaning today. But the Bible said God, says God has made us for a purpose that is bigger than ourselves. Let's pray that God will show it to us tonight. Father, we thank you that you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So please, Lord, show us the truth in your word tonight. Help us to receive it, to believe it, to love it, to live it, and even enjoy it. In Jesus' name, Amen. So why are we here? Well, let me show you how Christians down through the ages have answered that, and then we'll see where they get it from in the Bible. Because we stand in a river that goes back through the ages, all the way ultimately to Jesus and His Apostles who wrote down what He said. That is our source of truth. But we learn from the people who've come before us and what they've seen in the Bible. And we'll check it from Scripture like we do with everything. But I'm going to show you something from uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Mouthful, but it's, it's something that's about 400 years ago. A catechism was a way of teaching people the basics of the Christian faith... And they did it through question and answer, which you could memorize. And so the very first question in the Catechism was our question. What is the chief end of man? Which is a really old-timey way of saying it. They've changed the words have changed their meaning a bit since then. And so today, here's what we would say. What is the main purpose of humans? So what's the answer? Well, here it is. We exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And then in the Catechism, they also give some of the places they see it in the Bible. So what we're going to do tonight is look up some of those. We won't have time to go in-depth into all of them. We'll ask, what does that even mean? We'll think about why is it beautiful and compelling and life-giving rather than a threat. And then we'll spend some time applying it. Got where we're going? We'll come to the first one, Psalm 86, that Gracie read for us. A psalm is a a song or a prayer. And we'll pick it up in verse 8. To give us the context, Psalm 86, verse 8, Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. He's saying, there's nothing more beautiful, nothing better than God. Verse 10, for you are great and you do marvelous things. You alone are God. What are those marvelous things? The psalm gives you a bunch of them. Verse 5, he's forgiving, he's good. He hears prayer. Verse 6, he's faithful. Verse 11, because of all of the bits of God's goodness, verse 9 says that in the future, all the nations that you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. Every story, every movie has a complication and a resolution. The complication in the story of our world is that the nations don't worship the God who made them. They don't give God the credit He deserves. But this verse promises a good resolution. They will bring glory to your name. Revelation, if you were to flick to the end of the book, says that in the future, people from every nation on earth will gather around Jesus in worship. There's the first clue... The story is one about God and the people God made bringing glory to His name. But what does that actually mean? Well, I think the next one helps. So uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 60. If you, if you keep going forwards in your Bible, Isaiah, you Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah. I missed one, I think, but that's what I got. Isaiah 60 verse 20. And in Isaiah 60, you get another picture of our future A beautiful picture of the way that God will restore the world that we ruined. A restoration so far beyond our experiences that all He can do is draw analogies from the world that we we know. And so verse 18, no more violence. Isaiah 60 verse 20, no more darkness, no death, no more sorrow. And verse 21, look there, we will be righteous we won't hurt one another anymore. The fight against sin will be won. Isn't this good news? At last, we will easily and always do what's good. If you're suffering tonight, which which we all will go through, let me remind you again of our eternal future. God will heal and comfort every single bruise. But do you notice the reason that God does all these things in verse twenty-one? Why is God doing this incredible work of salvation? They are the shoot that I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. Now, it's for our good. That's undeniable. But even more than that, it's for Him. It's to display, to show His splendor, His beauty and goodness. Here's how someone once said it. God is seeking... That His glory and excellent perfections, His goodness, should be known, esteemed, valued, loved and delighted in by His creatures. God wants us to know how good He is. And that's what it means to glorify God. Have you ever wondered what that means, to bring God glory, to glorify Him? Well, verse 21 puts it in other words, to display His splendor. In other words, to show how good He is. It's a really big idea, there's lots of aspects to it, but I think if you boil it down, to glorify God means to show how good He is. Let me steal an analogy. Glorifying God is like being a telescope, not like being a microscope. A microscope makes something tiny like an ant, look bigger than it is, makes it look like a monster. Whereas with the, with the Hubble Space Telescope, The tiny little dots in our night sky are shown to be the billion star galaxies that they really are. Our world thinks that God is a blip, but He's not. Glorifying God is showing how great He really is. Let me give you one other analogy. The Hebrew word for glory is weight. I'm getting more and more glorious as I get older. When I get on the trampoline with my kids... They and all the little toys start to fly towards me. I'm the heaviest thing on the trampoline. When you show that God is the weightiest reality in your life, the most significant thing that pulls everything towards it, everything spins around it, you glorify God. To glorify God means that your thoughts, your words, your decisions show how big, how beautiful, how valuable God is. And so verse 21, that is God's goal in the world. The chief end of God is also to glorify God. Does that sound selfish? I do get it, that reaction. But don't forget that the way that God chooses to show His goodness is by fixing our biggest problem that we brought on ourselves by our own sin. And don't forget the cost. He paid for this salvation with his own blood. That was how he showed his love and his holiness, his mercy and his justice, his power and his wisdom. On the cross, in the resurrection, in the new creation, in all the events of salvation history, that's what it's all been about. Is that selfish? to display his splendor, he suffered what he didn't deserve to give us a future we certainly didn't deserve. But have you ever thought about this? That it would actually be selfish of God not to show us his splendor. Imagine Jeff Bezos bought all the beaches on the east coast of Australia and built a wall so that none of us could get in and enjoy them. And he's like, I'm just going to keep all these to myself. I'd be angry, wouldn't you? How can you keep something so good just for yourself? Well, Psalm 86, we saw, says that God is better again than all the beaches on the East Coast. He not only made those beaches, but every natural wonder in this planet and a billion others. It would be selfish of God to to not share His goodness with us. Is it selfish? No, it's loving. In fact, there's no more loving gift that God can give you than himself. There is nothing better. And so God's biggest goal is also our biggest good. God's goal to display his splendor is our biggest good, to see and know his greatness and splendor. And so that's the reason why you and I are here. Come forward to Romans chapter 11. Paul has been writing chapter after chapter about God's incredible plan of salvation and when he finishes, he just explodes into this, what is it, a song, a poem, praise. Verse 33, we'll we'll pick it up there. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments. God is so wise, verse 34, that none of us can give Him advice. In fact, verse 35, we can't give Him anything. Why? Because, verse 36, He Himself is the source of everything. How can you give to the one you got it from? For from Him and through Him and for Him Are all things. God doesn't need us. He's the one who gives us everything we have. Every good thing that you enjoy came from Him. Now, that just clarifies for us that glorifying God, bringing Him glory, doesn't mean adding more glory to Him because, verse 35, we can't give anything to Him. Bringing God glory doesn't mean giving Him any glory that He doesn't already have, it means showing how good He is. And that's what this passage says you and I were made to do. Verse 36, not only is everything from God, but it also says that everything is for Him. You exist for God, not the other way around. And this is where it gets personal. This will either be very threatening to you or a big relief. You don't have to work out your meaning in life because you already have one it's not to live for yourself or do what makes you happy you know previous generations have called that selfishness now apparently it's the most important thing no no no. the bible says verse 36 you were made for him and the next verse tells you what that means or the next phrase it means to live for his glory to him be the glory forever amen now, this is everywhere in the Bible. We, we won't turn to the, all the passages. We wouldn't have time. Uh, it would take us days. But there were, some of them are on the screen. The rest of the ones that they reference there. And there's hundreds more. 1 Corinthians 6.20, You were bought at a price, Jesus' death on the cross for you. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. 1 Corinthians 10.31, So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Revelation 4.11, You are worthy. Our Lord and God to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and continue to exist. Have there been? There's the first part of the answer. We exist to glorify God. But I do wonder if the second bit is a surprise. Would you have thought to add that and enjoy Him forever? I think deep down we sometimes assume that sin is fun. And therefore, doing the right thing, that's got to be the opposite. So it feels like a choice, doesn't it? What I enjoy versus what's right. But uh, turn to Philippians chapter 4. Keep going forward in your Bible. One of Paul's letters. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, he says. That's not me, that's him. I will say it again. Rejoice. Paul says it's possible to enjoy your relationship with God. In fact, we're told to pursue that. Rejoice in him. I'll say it again. Rejoice. If you just found that one, let's go to another one. Psalm 16. This is another song written by David. Uh, And while you're turning there, a bit about him. He was a musician But he was also kind of a Bear Grylls kind of guy. You know, before David was king, he was a shepherd who slept outdoors by himself while he looked after the sheep. One time, a lion came and grabbed one of the sheep. And so he chases it, grabs the sheep out of the lion's mouth, which then makes the lion turn on him. And he grabs it by the hair and beats it to death to save the life of him and the sheep. What do I say that? Don't put David in a box, all right? He wrote poetry, but he was tougher than anyone in this room. Who's the toughest person in this room? Ben Broadfoot. Todd. Lucy. <laughs> but then look at what David says about his relationship with God, verse five: "Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure." These are pictures of enjoyment, contentment, and security. It's like he's sitting down at a feast. He's looking at his portion and his cup. He's going, this is good. God is my feast. Verse 6, he says, God is like land that he's inherited. And he's happy with what he got. Better than getting a money or even a house, God is his delightful inheritance. Verse 9, Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Now, why does he rejoice in God? We're just going to quickly skim through the 73 songs that David wrote about him. Now, we're not going to do that. But you could do it later. Verse 11, though, have a look at that one. Here's one reason. You make known to me the path of life. Both, God tells us what the best way is to live in this life... And also the way to have eternal life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Do you see that knowing God brings joy and pleasure? Our purpose is not just to do our duty, it's to enjoy Him. Now we're not going to read through all the other verses, but um, you can have a quick read. I wonder, is this your experience? Do you enjoy comfort from God's love? Do you find peace in thinking about His forgiveness? Does it cause hope to grow in you as you think about the gift of eternal life? Do you find pleasure in obeying Him? You know, Jesus said, it's better to give than receive. He doesn't just mean morally better. You've felt this, haven't you? It's more fun to give than receive. There's satisfaction in serving... But above all of those things, there's enjoyment of God himself. A relationship with the infinite God of the universe. The awe of learning about him. The intimacy and closeness of talking to him. Now what if you don't enjoy God much? Well, that's probably a whole talk in itself, but just seven quick thoughts. They all start with R. Number one, realize that it's possible... Now, I don't think the penny dropped for me that this was possible until I read these books by John Piper as I finished high school. Desiring God, think about that word, desiring God. And don't waste your life. And I think just realising that it was possible kind of changed my approach to it and it actually helped me a lot. Secondly, repent. If there's sin that you're caught in, sin is one of the biggest joy killers. A moment of pleasure, yes, but it's a bad trade because it sucks the life from your soul. Thirdly, remember the gospel. Jesus said that the person who's forgiven much, loves much. Your joy will grow the more you realize just how completely he has saved you. Four, rejoice in prayer. Spend time talking to God about the things that you like about him, thanking him, that will grow your joy. Number five, remember that relationships take time your joy in God will grow naturally as you keep learning, trusting, obeying. Sixth, maybe you should see a psychologist. There could be other things going on for you that they might help you to untangle. Uh, and Seventhly, read a book like Desiring God or, or audio book it and get a guided tour from someone who's devoted their life to tasting God's goodness. Seven quick tips, there you go. But let's see if you can do this. You, you answer this question why are you here oh you you take it away this is how it works is q a and it helps you memorize it why what's the main purpose of humans oh we're not winning prizes (laughs) let's one more time i know it's lame but actually there's a there's there's thinking behind why they did this what is the main purpose of humans That'll do. <laughs> now, this book actually pointed out for me, when I, when I read it as I finished high school, that enjoying God actually also glorifies Him. When you enjoy something, that, that shows how good it is, doesn't it? And so those aren't two separate purposes. They're very much connected. And as I read that when I finished high school, it changed my life. It gave meaning and purpose to everything that I did. Now, of course, I fall short and I forget about it and all of that. But it has saved me from a life without purpose. And so let's think for a second about why this is good news, not just a threat. It is a threat to our world's way of thinking. What does the world say is the meaning of life? You tell me, what's the world say is the meaning of life? Oh, there it is again. Okay, it's okay. You didn't have time. Put that way. Get rid of that. Get it. What does the world say is the, is the meaning of life? Chocolate. Chocolate. So, for some people. What is it? You. Someone said it. There we go. Now we can get it up on screen. The most important thing is to do what feels right to you and love yourself for who you are and never stop doing the things that make you happy. The call to live for God's glory smashes into that, doesn't it? Because this puts me at the center. But to live for God's glory puts Him at the center but we've been told this since preschool. Now, I'm not exaggerating. That's an actual quote from a book they read to my four-year-old at preschool last week. And I'm not criticizing the preschool. It's fantastic. They do an awesome job. This is just what everyone in our world thinks. His mum taught him the most important lesson. Do what feels right to you. Love yourself for who you are. Rue promised he would never stop doing all the things that made him happy. That's the most important lesson he learned. Is that really what a four-year-old needs to be taught. I've got to tell you, she's already pretty good at choosing what she thinks will make her happy. That's very natural for her. Our goal is to help her choose not what she wants, but what is right and what's loving. Well, that used to be the goal, but actually that's changed in the last few decades. This is This has gone through everything, school, education, workplaces, a new wind of thought has blown through that quite consciously teaches that unless people accept themselves and do what feels right to them, they'll be trapped and depressed. And you know, that sounds so logical that no one actually stopped to ask if there's any evidence, but now a few decades in, the evidence is starting to emerge. There's research from psychology indicating that this, you could call it the self-esteem movement, this way of thinking. Well, firstly, it doesn't seem to have actually solved any of the problems. But secondly, there's some evidence that it's actually made some things worse. Narcissistic behavior. How could that? Entitlement. Even perhaps some things like depression and addiction, it seems that helping people focus on self-acceptance and self-fulfillment is actually backfiring. If you want to read more about that, there's a great book by, um, by a professor of psychiatry at University of Bristol called The Big Ego Trip. But brothers and sisters, you've been taught this since preschool. You've been indoctrinated into a brand new and untested and failing way of seeing life. And it's still happening today, still, last week, still, the world says that the greatest sin is to tell someone not to live for themselves. The greatest sin in our world right now is to tell someone not to pursue what they most want to do and be. Brothers and sisters, that's not right. That is what the Bible calls selfishness. And the purpose that we've seen in the Bible tonight is good news because it can set you free from that dead end. Because number one, it's not about you. If this truth lands in your heart, it will liberate you from chasing the very small goal of yourself. You know, they've shown that people have more joy and meaning when they have a goal that's bigger than they are. Well, you won't find a goal that's bigger than the glory of the God of the universe. This is a purpose that actually doesn't have to come from you it's not made up it's true you exist for a reason your life doesn't have to come to nothing as we glorify god it will echo for eternity and it's a purpose that doesn't depend on you because unlike so many other goals you can glorify god no matter your skills all your accomplishments. Because it's not about how good you are, it's about how good God is. And so you can achieve your purpose no matter if you're healthy or sick, no matter if your body is able or unable, even in a hospital bed, in fact, maybe especially in a hospital bed. You can show how good and trustworthy God is. Even there, you can trust Him and enjoy Him and hope in Him. You know, if you live for yourself, you will be frustrated when things don't go the way you dreamed. But if you live for God's glory, you can honour Him in any circumstance. Even when your plans fail, your purpose won't. Do you see why it's so loving of God to call us to live for His glory? Otherwise, we would miss out on the best person who exists. But instead, we get to live seeing and enjoying and showing His beauty. Let's spend some time applying this. First of all, is that what you're living for? Now we all forget, if that's you, that's me, be reminded tonight, God, please help me remember and live this way. But maybe you've never actually decided to stop living for yourself at all. Do that tonight. God calls you to turn and live for the reason you were made, for Him. The Bible says that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of His glory, it says. We've all failed to live for Him. But He sent His Son to die on the cross, to forgive all your sins so that you can come back to God Not just as the judge to be feared, but as a father to love and enjoy. Now and forever as you live with him in heaven. God wants to share his goodness with you. He wants to involve you in his plans to share his goodness with the world. Come back to him tonight. Trust him for forgiveness. Trust Jesus for forgiveness. And decide to live for him to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Is that what you're living for? If it is, then I think the next question is, what does that look like in practice? How do we glorify God? And the Bible says, heaps of different ways, way more than we could cover now. And so look out for that as you read through His Word. The more that you see, the more every single moment of your life will fill up with purpose. Because it is possible to glorify God in everything, from work and study, even to things like sleep and sport, even sex. The Bible will help you join all those dots. Maybe a book like Desiring God will will help show you some key verses to to have a look at. What we're going to do, though, is I'll very briefly run through a few and then zoom in on two. So here you go. How do you glorify God? You can glorify God by trusting Him, obeying Him, Serving others with the gifts that he's given you. Doing good. Praying and asking him for things. All those show his importance. They show his significance to you. They show his work in your life. The next one there enjoy the good things he's made with thanksgiving. Last night I went for a run at sunset down on Greenpoint waterfront. And I enjoyed God's good gifts. And because I've been thinking about this, I remember to thank Him. That's another way to bring Him glory. But not everything glorifies God equally. And so we want to work out what choices bring God the most glory. And as you get a sense of that, that'll actually bring clarity and purpose to every decision that you make. For example, does it glorify God to just enjoy all the sunsets and the food that He's made? and ignore all the people around us who are dying and going to hell without worshipping Him. Now it glorifies God actually, when sometimes, often, we love God enough even to give up some of the good things that He's made, to turn so that we can tell people about the God who made them their Creator and Saviour. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 15 says that when they trust Him, their thanksgiving will glorify Him as well. And one of the biggest ways is to be willing even to suffer or die for Him. That shows that you think God is worth more than anything this world can offer. Paul in Philippians chapter 1, 20 to 22, says that Christ will be exalted, lifted up, same idea whether by his life or by his death. Because he says, for me to live is Christ, but to die, that would be gain. And so you glorify God when you see death as gain. I get to be with him and glorify and enjoy him face to face forever. Are you doing those things? I see lots of you doing heaps of that. Not perfectly, of course. But let me encourage you. I think you, God is at work in you guys. Do it all the more. You are glorifying God. You are doing what you were made to do. Even if no one else sees it, He does. And it will echo for eternity. Well, there's a broad sweep, but I want to finish by zooming in on two other ways that the Bible says we glorify God. Number one, gathering as a church, and number two, singing. Not because they're more special, although in the Bible that they are actually linked with God's glory in surprisingly big ways, but because we as a church are still rebuilding after COVID. I've been a bit sick since like April, which has meant I haven't been able to do things I enjoy like run or lift weights. And my muscles, well, they're not what they once were. But there's fat in replacing that, so that's okay, you can't tell. It's actually a bit the same with church. We took a massive hit two years where we could hardly gather, hardly sing, and we took a massive hit to our muscles of gathering and singing. And so I want to just spend a little bit of time spurring us on by showing you how those things glorify God and help us enjoy Him. So number one, did you know that it glorifies God when we gather and love each other as a church? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. You can have a look if you want, but it's up there on the screen. Paul says, "...through the church..." The word church means gathering... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The first two chapters, Paul has talked about how Jesus' work on the cross takes people who were totally different from each other and makes them one, makes them family. And that's what this gathering is. There's no way, I'm sorry, there's no way we'd all be together except for Jesus. Isn't that true? Look around. Just by gathering, we show God's wisdom and power in uniting us, bringing us together in Jesus. You can drive to church every Sunday night with a purpose. I'm going to do something I was made for. I'm going to go and glorify God just by being there. Your commitment to be here, even when you're tired or it's busy or it's raining, for some reason it's always raining on a Sunday, that glorifies God. And it glorifies God when you love each other because Jesus has made you family. I love it. I see some of you guys, you turn up early and I see you coming with real intentionality. You're thinking, I want to be there early to welcome new people. When someone comes to church who's had a hard week, I want to be there as a friendly face for them when they arrive. I see that intentionality and it's so good. Glorify God by loving His people. Let me cast a little bit of a vision. I reckon there's an easy thing we could all do that would instantly make church feel even more warm and like a family than it already does. Does that sound good? In on that? Here it is. Do you see all these empty seats down here? Now, by some trick, it's a lot better this week than it normally is. I don't know what strings you pulled, or maybe it was but I can still see a bunch of empty seats down here. I guarantee it, if next week we all came two rows further and sat two seats closer, church, maybe more than two, who knows, go crazy. Down here, down here, down here, down here. I guarantee it, church would feel friendlier. You'd hear each other sing better. You'd even see each other better you personally would find it easier to engage. You'd get more out of it. Now, there's no command about where to sit, all right? And and some people have have health things or other things that make it harder. I'm not trying to make us feel guilty, but if you are able, I think that sitting as close as you can, both to the front and to each other, I do think that is a better expression of God's glory in bringing us together. Are you up for it? Who's up for it? It's <laughs> good. There'll be four seats down the front here, <laughs> full. Now, let's give it a try next week. I, I reckon we can do it. Let's see these, these, these seats down here full. But I hope it's not just next week. Actually, I hope that what I'm saying now is f- forming in you perhaps a conviction for a lifetime. If for no other reason than this, you will get more out of church yourself. Even if you're late. Can I just say, if you come in late, don't feel ashamed. Just, just keep on coming. Just keep walking. We'll understand. You know, flat tire. Who knows? There's a, the there's a first one. You would have been here 45 minutes earlier. It takes an hour to change a tire. We know. There's the first one. It glorifies God when we gather and love each other as a church. Here's the second one. Singing. Singing praises glorifies God and helps us to enjoy Him. The biggest book in the Bible, Psalms, is a book of songs praising God. Why is that? Because, number one, songs that praise God bring Him glory. Now, that comes up so many times in the Bible, it's hard to even know where to begin. Let's just go to one. Psalm 96, verse 2. Easy book to find, but once you're in it, there's still a bit of flicking. There we go. Psalm 96, verse 2. Sing to the Lord. Praise His name. Proclaim His salvation. Day after day, declare His glory among the nations, His marvellous deeds among all the peoples. You know, once my um, non-Christian family came to church around Christmas time, one of the things that stood out to them was the way we sang. Wow, they really believe this. Now, worship is not just singing. I hope you've heard that tonight, that worship... We worship God with all the different aspects of our lives, but one way we do worship Him is with singing. You are declaring how good God is. Singing's not just something we came up with, God tells us to do it. I wonder if you value it the way God does. It's one of the ways you fulfill God's purpose for your life. But secondly, not just the words that we sing, they glorify Him, but the feeling matters too. Secondly, enjoying singing His praises brings Him glory. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. That's disappointing. I'll fix that later. (laughs) Lucky I also wrote it here in my notes. There we go. Do you see, we we sing to God, not just with our mouths, but with our hearts. It says with gratitude in your hearts. The, The emotion, the enjoyment of God, the thankfulness, that's part of what glorifies Him. That helps show how good He is. But what if you don't feel it? I actually think our culture is very unhelpful here. Our culture would say that unless you feel it, you probably shouldn't get very into the singing because that would be fake. That hasn't helped us because actually it works the other way around. If you don't feel it, that's when you most need to get into the singing because actually music and singing is a gift from God to help us feel it. Someone once said this, words make you think, music makes you feel, but a song makes you feel a thought. Words make you think, music makes you feel, a song helps you feel a thought. Singing God's praises helps us to enjoy Him. There's the the third thing I want to Just talk to you about singing for a second. Singing together is a gift that God has given us to help us grow in our enjoyment of Him. It helps us to feel the way that we should feel if the things that we say we believe are true. And brothers and sisters, I think that this gift has plenty of untapped potential in our church. We've got plenty of room to grow. And so let me encourage you, if you're not feeling it, that's even more reason to get into singing, with your mind engaged, letting the truths really sink in, with your voice, singing loudly, even with your bodies. Now some churches, they pressure you to put your hands up. Other churches, they pressure you to keep them down. This church does not either of those things. Because the New Testament never commands you to put them up or to bring them down. It never commands you to do anything or not do anything when you sing. You've got freedom. But you do have principles. What are the principles? Love God and love your neighbor. And so do what glorifies God and helps you to enjoy Him. And also, do what's helpful for those around you. Now that means, I don't want to be distracting. I don't want to be too out there. I don't want to do cartwheels. But I also, I want to be encouraging. And sometimes what you do with your face or your body encourages or discourages other people. Now, can I be honest? I really don't think our biggest danger is that we're going to be too distracting to each other. I'll come and talk to you if that's you, or Luke Father will come and talk to you. The trampoline wasn't a good idea. The timbre, actually, I shouldn't give specifics, but I honestly don't think that's going to be our biggest danger. I suspect that actually sometimes we worry a little bit too much what other people will think of us and in doing so we miss opportunities to encourage each other. There's actually research that says that what you do with your body, your posture, affects your mind and your emotions. And so without making a law, because the Bible doesn't give us a law, I do think we can afford to be a little bit more expressive with our bodies, okay? Now, use your freedom to glorify God and love your neighbour. But what if you're just not that sort of person? Well, that's why it's so helpful that this is in Colossians chapter 3. This instruction from Paul comes in a list of other things that we're to do, like be humble and be patient and be kind. So can you say, but I'm not naturally a patient kind of person? No, Paul doesn't expect us to say that. We're not off the hook. Paul is calling us to grow in those things by God's Spirit, by trying to do it. And it's the same with singing to God. Paul doesn't want us just to think that's for some people, that's what they're good at and and not other people. No, no, no. Just like being patient, we are called by God in His Word to grow in it, by God's Spirit, by intentionally practicing it. And so even if you don't see yourself as a singing person, God calls you to do it anyway, to push into the weirdness, to trust Him to use it to help you enjoy Him. I pray that this isn't just a thing that... like, I think after this we're going to sing and I hope it's really good, but I actually pray that this doesn't just change tonight. I actually pray it forms deep convictions in you so that whether or not the band is pumping, I thank God we have a great band, but other churches may not that you end up in or... Whenever you get a chance to sing God's praises, do it with everything you've got. One last thing. You see in Colossians 3 that singing is a word activity. Let the message of Christ dwell among you as you teach with psalms, hymns and songs in the Spirit. We are a church that loves the Word of God, but sometimes we can think that that is just the Bible reading and the sermon. We can sometimes think to ourselves, you know, I was late to church, I missed the singing, but I still caught the word time. Do you see the problem with that? Singing is a word activity. Just as we expect the sermon to encourage and grow us, we should approach the songs that we sing together with that same expectation. To miss the singing, to be late and miss the singing, is to miss an opportunity both to be taught the word and to teach it to others. Honestly, sometimes I come to church and I've got doubts, I'm feeling flat, I've forgotten the goodness of God, God, one God, and sometimes it has honestly been the Word of God, as I've heard you sing it, as I've seen you sing it, that has encouraged my soul. We need the witness of the crowd, we need each other, which means it helps if we can hear you it actually does make a difference how loudly you sing. Not because God's more glorified by a louder noise, but because hearing each other helps the Word to dwell richly. It helps us encourage each other. And so let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to value the gift God has given us in singing together. Commit to being here for it, to really engage in it with your heart, your mind, and even your body as you feel comfortable. To, you, because as you do that, You are glorifying God. It's far from the only way to glorify God, but it is one of the ways that we do what we were made to do. And it's a gift from God to help us enjoy Him. So why don't we do that now? Father, we thank You that You made us for a purpose. Help us to glorify You with our lives. Help us to enjoy You forever. I pray, Lord, that some people among us would be Willing even to suffer and die. To see people hear about Jesus. To obey you. And so to show that you are so worth it. And Lord, please even use this time of singing now to bring honour to your name and to grow our enjoyment of you. Amen.